Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. I am joined once again by Billy Galanko in studio, back in the country. We had a good run with Adam, but Billy, it's good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was a good almost two weeks in Slovenia and Italy. So we can talk a little bit more about that later, but glad to be back. Did you listen to any of the podcasts while you were gone? Do you think, you know, where do you think the quality was at? Do you think we hit our mark? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I listened once I got back, (laughs) tried to disconnect a little bit from, and uh, you know, you guys are spot on. Adam's always, (laughs) always great. And you're, you're consistent. That's good. Consistent. Yeah. That's what, that's what we're striving for is consistency. (laughs) Why why settle for greatness when you can be consistent? All right. So yeah, today I think we have we've kind of been in a lull the last two weeks. Not a lull, but we've had a big build up to this Bordeaux Entrepreneur collection. Did the webinar earlier last week. Um, you can find that recording in the show notes. We'll we'll post that recording of the webinar that we did. But we wanted to share a little bit more for those who weren't on the webinar or maybe just to have some of this information in a pared pared down context on the podcast. So we want to dive in a little bit today and talk about the Bordeaux on for more 2021 collection that we'll be launching today. You know, when, when you listen to this podcast on Wednesday, the 31st of August collection will be live. We expected to have a little bit of a runway because it is our largest collection to date. It's $230,000 of total value. It's also our largest in terms of the amount of bottles held in the collection. So we source over 1,100 bottles, 1,164 to be exact, from 46 producers from Bordeaux. Billy, I'll let you talk a little bit about what Entremore means and you know mm-hmm. how, just briefly, about how we acquired these wines and what their the next two, three years of their life will look like. Yeah, and then we can talk a little bit more about how Entremore is unique in wine investment portfolio. Yeah, and I think to your to your point, the the purposeful runway, or at least the size of the collection is on purpose because one, as a futures piece, which we can, I can dive in a little bit what that really means. It's it's a different type of asset. So say you have your Bordeaux wines that are already physical or back vintage. This is something that everybody should have in their portfolio. So we made a big enough collection so that both our current investors, but also new people coming to the platform for an extended period of time will have access to these wines. So yeah, taking one step back, what on Premier is, is basically wine futures. As I was saying, it got, came into really, I guess, commonality right after World War II. A lot of the producers in Bordeaux were having cash flow issues after the war. They were basically needing cash a little bit sooner after producing the wine. So basically what happens with on Premier is a vintage will happen. So say just like this year, 2021, the winemakers were harvest the fruit make the wine in the fall, it'll begin aging. And then over time, it's taken out of whatever it was fermented in, whether that be concrete or stainless steel, occasionally in barrel, and it'll be barreled down. And the wine will be sitting in barrel until about March or April, where it's still in barrel, but then samples will be taken. And in April, what they basically offer is for the industry to come and taste how the wine is developing, see what the vintage was like in terms of a structural flavor profile. And then so that's basically in April, the wine world descends on Bordeaux. So there's industry experts, merchants, critics, everybody comes and tastes the previous year's vintage. And then come May, 
what will happen is the Chateau will actually release offerings of these wines. Basically, you'll be able to buy these wines while they're still aging in barrel. And you actually get to dictate once you've purchased them, like what size bottles you want them in. Well, it's more the, the pack size. So do you want 750 mil in like a six pack? Do you want a three pack? And that's more of what you get to pick. If you if you pick larger formats, that becomes a little more expensive and they just make less of those. But basically, so recapping, there's harvest, it goes through and then come only about eight or nine months later, the wines are available for sale while they're still maturing in bottle. Come mid-May through June, you can buy them. And by you, it basically has this kind of complex system where the Chateau work through this these brokers called courtiers, who then work through a, another layer of brokers called negociants. Those negociants then offer the wine to the general public. And by general public, it's more merchants, hospitality, um, folks like that. It's very almost impossible for an individual to kind of buy on premier wines directly from negociants. You have to have some special connections, a lot of money, what have you. And then basically once those negociants get their their offerings, they re- are all released on the same day and you know, you can get allocations. So if we have a relationship with a certain negociant, they'll allocate X amount of wine for you. So if it's a first growth, maybe they'll offer you six bottles. That seems like a small amount, but since, you know, in certain years there are very limited quantities, that's what happens. So a negociant will offer wines and you'll have the ability to say yes or no, do we want to buy them? So Adam and I spent most of mid-May through June basically fielding these offers as they're released every day, like randomly. There's no rhyme or reason to when things are released. And we basically put together a portfolio of right and left bank wines based on the prices at which they were released at, the quality of the wines in terms of critic scores and what I tasted while I was in Bordeaux and put together a, a large basket that's now you know over $200,000 worth of wine for our investors. Now, we have all but one of the first growths represented in the futures offering. Do you get to taste the first growths when you're, you were there in April or are they kind of left out of this? How does that work? First growths, and maybe you can explain to exactly who they are briefly. Yeah. So quickly again, I'm sure most of our listeners know, but the first gross in Bordeaux in, in 1855, the Chateau of Bordeaux were classified actually based on price of the wines that they commanded at the time. They were five or four at the time, first growth wines. There was one added in the in the 60s or was it the 70s where he actually broke through. Either way, one added in the 1900s. And these are basically just the top wines on the left bank of Bordeaux, Cabernet base. And yes, you normally, they do offer tastings. They are typically, I did not get to taste them because Vint is a, a younger company. And at the time I had not been there and had the personal connection. So basically we've we've been buying through Negociant for a greater part of this year, but most of those tastings are set up by Negociants ahead of time and basically for the biggest buyers. So next year, I anticipate us being able to to taste those. I was not able to this year, but yeah, it's, it's really actually interesting. It's a good point that you say all but one because Latour actually backed out of the on-premier system. And what this was really is more of an effort, again, to kind of hold their stock. And we'll touch on this a little bit later and kind of minimize how much they release all up front in an effort both to kind of participate in appreciation of the wines down the line, but also to get a better sense of who the people are who are actually purchasing the wines, you know, at, at the end customer. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, I think that, you know, we've said maybe podcasts leading up, I think Adam and I maybe discussed it, the opportunity to acquire wines at this price. I mean, this is uh, by far the best opportunity you're going to get to acquire such high quality wines 
from a coveted region at this price point, right? So there is a kind of built-in discount. There's incentive for merchants to purchase these wines on Primor. And yeah, so it is great that we got to get such a broad uh, breadth of producers from all up and down the classifications. Why yeah, is that? Go ahead. Yeah, and just to, to build on that too, I think what, what's interesting is when you say value, sometimes, you know, it, the price of the wine can't appreciate and these are the typics in, but it's like you're also buying as close to the producer as you can get. These wines are, you know, directly from the producer. They're going to be in original wooden cases. They're going to have like absolutely perfect provenance. So there's something to be said for that too, rather than just maybe you could find a, a bottle of this wine later by itself that's been in some guy's cellar and has like bounced around its whole life. Like this, these wines are, the provenance is, is absolutely pristine and the best you can get. So there's also value in that and not just the price. Yeah, that's right. And, and the pricing with what we're seeing with comparable vintages, which I know we use in the webinar, we go into a little bit more detail on this, but we're kind of been using the 2017 vintage in Bordeaux a sort of the benchmark or the comp for this 2021 vintage. Maybe that, you know, talk briefly about some of those, you know, what, what, what went into kind of 2017 being the comp and, you know, the fact that we have been seeing favorable pricing, getting some value out of these 2021s relative to the price of the current 2017s. Yeah. Yeah. Really high level 2021 and 2017 were both kind of cooler years overall, lower yields overall in terms of grapes in terms of wine produced as well 2021 was actually a little lower than 2017 both vintages frost early in the growing season as well as rain kind of around late june and july so it kind of made a little bit more of a a restrained wine as opposed to some of the different vintages kind of surrounding on either side with 18 and 19 and ahead of 2017 as well kind of being a little bit more riper a little bit more full-bodied vintages so and in terms of stylistically, these wines are a little bit more similar, although 2021 kind of had a little bit more prolonged coolness that's really led to these kind of classic balanced Bordeaux wines. I remember when, when we were tasting there, the uh, we had a few of the wines and the, and the British merchants I was tasting with just kept saying these are really like a, a traditional claret, like, you know, how the Brits call mm-hmm. red Bordeaux clarets. And there were a few and they were saying that, you know, some of the years that they had been tasting recently were bordering more on in their terms, a new world wine. I mean, they have a really old world palate, but they were just so ripe and fruit forward that they were saying, you know, when you got a good one this year, it was back to that kind of fresh balance and also secondary notes. So, yeah. Which, you know, if someone's buying Bordeaux for either consumption, well, most likely for consumption, if they're an enthusiast or a collector, they're going to be looking for a style. I would assume most likely that's lends more towards like kind of that that freshness, the balance with the tertiary notes, more of an old world style versus like that big yeah. new world style? Or, or did you hear, was I mean, that just the company that you were with? Or do you think that, you know, when if folks are going to buy Cabernet or Merlot based wine from Bordeaux, they're looking for that versus maybe what they might get out of Napa Valley? Yeah. I mean, what you're always looking for is a balance of fruit and acid. And what they were saying is some of the wines that they had tasted in in other years were considered good years is because they got ripe enough. And like Bordeaux used to be hard to ripen things all the way. And now, especially you'll see this year, there's heat wave and drought and things are going to be ripe enough. So what they're really looking for is this balance of acid and fruit. So over time, the acid along with the tannin helps the wine develop and mature as it ages. So that's it's kind of what they're looking for. And like you want enough fruit so it doesn't just drop out and you kind of just have no fruit and you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But at the same time, if you have too much 
sugar and alcohol and fruit as it matures and that kind of tends to drop out there's not going to be a lot of structure left to support the development down the line so yeah, yeah. well i mean it sounds, sounds like there's some positive qualities with the wines that you know we were able to source and there's always gems in every vintage and there's they, that was i think what was so important about you being able to be on the ground there and to, to taste some of these especially the ones that you know the first growths i know you say you didn't get to taste those this year but it's kind of an expectation of what the quality will be like for for, for those wines so but it's really good to be able to taste uh, some of the other producers in the lineup too and so yeah we're excited about that release what we another kind of trend that we've seen in the region over time related to the futures has just been reduced volume of the last four vintages both in the amount of wine produced and the amount of wine actually being offered during the futures during the on more window for instance this 2021 harvest was down more than 20 percent versus the 10-year average that was a number that we shared during the webinar and so what happens when as the years progress on people are you know they're looking they're obviously looking for the best wines from the best years but as a wine ages there's less of it on the market and so folks begin anticipating new releases of that wine and especially new releases of wines that maybe matching quality a year that they were looking for that maybe is out of their price range or that they simply can't find and so whenever we kind of are on the cusp and have that catalyst of a new vintage which is about to go from barrel to being bottled and then released there's an opportunity for potential price appreciation there and the fact that the harvest and the volume overall was down of this vintage will further put I think likely pressure on supply and hopefully therefore raise raise the value as as demand hopefully stays consistent. So mm-hmm. these are some kind of things that we're thinking about anticipating yeah. lower supply but also increased demand because of of the relatively low volume of these past vintages. Yeah. And like so like you were saying there's 20% less fruit harvested this year and then you know due to some of the challenging conditions with some some mildew and some of the moisture earlier in the year there was a lot of sorting done. And like that sorting basically just means they're picking out the best fruit. So they're still making a good wine, but it just reduces the amount of wine that can be made. And then to your other point with Chateau wanting to hold on to the wines and participate in some of that appreciation or release less at the time, there there was on average more than like, it was, I think the range was 30, it was more than 30%. I think I saw some as high as like 60% less wine released this year than in recent years, even last year. So it's like there, there's just less wine becoming available on the market in addition to, and by market forces, in addition to the yields, you know, reducing the actual amount of wine made. So there's a bunch of factors that are leading to this increased scarcity. Yeah, and kind of another point that we have been making and we made in our thesis relative to value is that we've, and we've talked about in our podcast, obviously with our other collections, this seeing such a strong kind of bullish trend price appreciation around Burgundy and Champagne and kind of other top regions, especially around France, seems to be a real opportunity for Bordeaux, even as it's, you know, the number one traded region by value globally. There's it's still an opportunity, I think, for it to emerge as a source of relative value among some of these other regions. So, you know, part of our thesis is that we might be able to see continued uptake in these upcoming vintages of Bordeaux and collectors really looking for them. And hopefully prices being driven up because of that, just because some of the prices in in Burgundy are getting so astronomical, you know, there might be an opportunity for Bordeaux to emerge as an opportunity for value and, and therefore drive the price up of those wines as well. 
Yeah. And on that note, too, just speaking of releases, I kind of uh, quickly went over how he selected wines this year. But on the whole, in, in terms of British pounds, the wines were only 1% more expensive this year. The, the releases typically over the past 20 years, you had seen producers kind of increasing the price of their wine year to year a lot, even regardless of the quality of the vintage and and stuff, especially when making the, the, the really good vintages fairly expensive. So this year, some merchants were hoping they would they would kind of like sharpen their pencil, as they say, a little bit more and even come in less. But, you know, taking into account inflation and some other things with the wines only going up 1% this year, they, there were certainly a lot of good values to add. And that was that was on the average. There were certainly some that were less than last year. So yeah, it was a really interesting year just to, to be judicious and find opportunities. Yeah. yeah. And this is something that only comes around once a year, the opportunity to purchase these wines. And so if you're, a coll- if you're a collector and a wine enthusiast and a drinker of wines, you know that kind of this is, this is a prime time to be purchasing. And so this is also kind of a unique opportunity to make investments because this is, you know, the only on more collection that we'll be doing for this year. And it won't be until another year where we have, where we have another collection. You know, I know plenty of people who only buy on more Bordeaux and that's kind of their, their style of investing. So I think that this collection definitely is a cornerstone piece in a portfolio it 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 deserves a you know to to make up a chunk of your allocation towards this top tier of assets like burgundy and bordeaux yeah and with the the built-in value there already being that we were able to get advantageous pricing since we're in kind of that pre-bottling stage yeah i think there's a, a really strong investment thesis behind this collection so we're excited to to launch it if you if you have any questions about the offering or how it fits into your portfolio Obviously, you can reach out to us, but we're very proud to offer this on Premore collection as our 40th offering on the Vint platform. Yeah, and I, so you know, moving a little bit beyond our upcoming collection, wanted to touch a little bit on something that you kind of came back and talked to me about, and I thought was really interesting. This and we mentioned it a few times on the podcast in the past when we get into the weeds of talking about wines that we enjoy but orange wines on your trip to slovenia you got to explore some you had had some unique experiences i think which brought to mind the idea of some of these wines emerging as potentially investable in in you know coming up in the future maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the experiences you had in slovenia this time out there and and some of the wines that you were able to experience yeah so like, like we've, we've mentioned before, outside of a lot of the traditional wines and, and work, I drink a lot of these these natural wines and, and orange wines, which actually led my partner and I to going to Slovenia as our trip. Turns out they have a, I mean, they have a, I knew they had a storied history of winemaking, but they also have beautiful nature. But the more I kind of dove into their kind of background. First, I got that book I've referenced before, Amber Revolution, and then I've read deeper and deeper into orange wines and, and kind of the, the culture here. And initially, I was you know thinking more only about Georgia. But as this kind of modern trend has come around, you know, most people are kind of adopting orange wines, like a, a, they're calling it a trend. And they're saying like, oh, any wine with skin contact is this kind of orange wine. And they're not really taking it seriously. It's kind of more just, you know, a style of wine that maybe is easily quaffable. But the more I read about it, the, the same names kept coming up. There was Yasko Ravner, Gravner, and Stenko Radikon would come up regularly. And I was I was always wondering how every orange wine conversation starts with these two guys. And it turns out they're based in this area of northern Friuli, kind of called the Colio. The town's called Oslavia. And it's used to be part of Slovenia. Now it's not. It's basically right outside their border, just keeps going back and forth. And so we went down there. We tasted, we actually stayed 
in an area called Garishka Berda, which is 10 minutes away from Oslavia, the actual town. In front of us was like an amphitheater of vines and you could see Italy. So what was cool there is we basically got the experience of Friuli and Slovenia. We drove through down and actually ended up in Venice as well. So we drove all the way through Friuli and we basically kind of did a deep dive on two varietals, really, Ribola Gialla and Friulano. Friulano is also called Savignon Nas. It's also called Savignon. Some of the Slovenian producers call it Yakot. It used to be called Friulano Tokai, which is kind of interesting. And then the people in Tokai and Hungary were like, just like in port and champagne, they're like, you got to stop calling it this because your wine is nothing like ours. It's not even made from the same grapes as ours. So they call it Friulano now, basically coming from Friuli. And then right over the border there in Slovenia, they have a bunch of names for it. The name Yakot is actually Tokai backwards in Slovenian. So it was people kind of making a little little poke at fun there. But yeah, no, so, so what's interesting is this this area has been kind of the, the crossroads of cultures for years. It was part of the Byzantine Empire. It became part of the Venetian Empire. And and then down the line, even as part of the Habsburg Empire. So it has these traditions of winemaking. I mean, the, the winemaking goes back to Roman times, but it has these traditions of mixing cultures and styles. Just a little bit of background on, on Friuli is many, maybe some of our listeners might have known that in the 60s, the guy named Mario Schiapetto really brought down Germanic winemaking approaches of clean, crisp white wines and kind of married them with varietals in the area, as well as some of the French varietals that had been brought by the Habsburgs in the 1800s. And he started making these really crisp, clean, like linear stainless steel wines that were way ahead of their time. At the time, many people in Italy were making kind of old big barrel fermented. They're kind of like these lackadaisical white wines that didn't really have a lot of fruitness, fruitiness and freshness to them. So he kind of revolutionized the style to much of like what we might know today is, you know, kind of think of your crisp, lean Pinot Grigios or Chardonnays or some of those styles of wine. He really revolutionized that in Italy. So it kind of put Friuli on the map for that. He would make both whites and, and some reds that way. They're known kind of for Merlot up there in, in that large bulk kind of market. But in recent years, more native varietals like Friulano have come back into the fold, Ribola Jala, and they're really starting to embrace these wines on a broader scale. So right now, I think the DOC allows like 18 single variety wines to be made. Why it's important that we mention this really clean styles is that basically all of the traditional winemakers, they've been making wines here for centuries basically switched over to this super clean style in the 70s and 80s. They got rid of their old old tanks. They got rid of them. They never really used amphora as much there, but they got rid of you know smaller vessels in, in terms in basically trading them for big stainless clean steel production. Uh, the wines were you know well lauded. They were popular for the time. But then what's his name? Yasko Gravner. Wow. Pause there. I always get Stenko and Yasko mixed up in terms of first names. But Yasko, he basically was like, why are we making this wine this way when our ancestors or our, you know, basically past generations were making these skin contact wines? So he made a conscious effort, basically, even though his company was thriving to basically get rid of all of his all of his clean winemaking equipment and went back to the old style of larger vessels, extended skin contact. And he started making Ribola Jala in a really traditional way. He kind of spawned this school around him of which one was Stenko Radicon. And then so in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s through the early 2000s, there was kind of this revolution of going back to the old style of skin contact winemaking. Along this process, Grovner actually made what he called kind of a pilgrimage to Georgia. So he brought back the Cavevri, those big amphora pots, and he started aging his wines in those as well, which also caught on in the region, but everything's not exclusively made there. So they're still different than Georgian wines. But this 
is really what inspired many winemakers throughout the world to kind of pursue these orange wines. They started in the 90s and they just kept at it, even though, you know, mainstream winemakers and mainstream critics were actually criticizing them. They were like, what are you doing? This is really strange. You were making great wine before. They would submit wine to competitions. They would just get returned. So it's interesting. They had this kind of perseverance to keep powering through making these wines that had extended skin contact, even though they're made from white grapes. So they had like medium tannin, high acid, and they've been aging beautifully for the past 20 plus years. The quality of these wines, both young and old, has inspired this general macro orange wine movement. It's helped put actually Georgia, which inspired them, back on the map more and is kind of the impetus for what you're seeing in a lot of these wine bars. So bringing it back to Vint and an investable nature, I was actually at a restaurant called Subida. I had I was lucky enough through our, we've talked about it before, Club Divan, a membership basically has an NFT membership that I was able to get connected to Michael Madrigal, who is a sommelier in New York. And he made the intro to this restaurant called Subida. And it's just over the border in Friuli from Slovenia. We could actually see it from our hotel. It's kind of cool. We asked our our waitress the first night where what direction it was, if we could bike there. And she just like pointed to it. And <laughs> so, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, Mitya, he's a winemaker, whole generation winemaker there. And he also runs the the hotel, restaurant, everything that it's a part of. And he was our personal sommelier that evening, which was really neat. And I got to taste a 2004 Ribola Jala made by Radican. And he had decanted. He had also decanted a, a Friulano for me earlier that day. It was really interesting to see their different decanting approaches. But he basically... What, what, any- what temperature are they serving that at? The Friulano was cold. That was... Okay. It was on ice, but it was basically in like picture a chemistry beaker. It was a round globe with like yeah. a really thin neck on the top. And it was like, I hadn't really seen a decanter like it before. And hmm. it, was, it was pretty cool. Did they um, like decant it and then pour it back in and then so the bottle and then put it on ice or why? Like, why did. So yeah. that, that was for the free Lano. That one, he basically kept the bottle itself in ice. And then mm-hmm. it was kind of like a long, flat ice bucket. So the beaker like thing was actually next to it. And what the the shape allowed it to do was the wine to sit at the bottom and be exposed to air in the top of like the bulb, but it was still touching the ice. So it was both opening up while cooling down at the same time. And I think part of that was, I think this was stored at probably just regular cellar temp, like, you know, 55 or 60 or something. So they wanted to bring it down a little bit more Mm -hmm. because as it was in the glass, it continues to warm and open up. But he poured me some of the Radicon, the 2004 Rubola Jala from a traditional decanter. It had a ton of sediment and... That's why you need the decanter, but as well as to open up so the tannins. And he was he told me when I had it basically think about like a at least like a Premier Cru Burgundy or think about a, a high quality aged Burgundy. And the nose was very much like that. It had that earthiness, that like really unique developed sense. I'm trying to think of some of the, the terms, but maybe like be like ginger or some of like all those really interesting like spicy notes that you get after a really well-aged Pinot Noir that kind of the fruit's still there a little bit underneath, but it just really had this complexity and depth of aromatics that I had never tried before. And then you take it on the palate and the acid was still there shining through. The structure is just perfect. The tannins had mellowed and the color even was like almost like an aged burgundy. You know, it, it at this point, you know, it had turned almost like a, from an orange more towards like a, I don't want to say like a, like a bronze, but you know, in between there like like a light brickish kind of yeah he was developing like some pinkish hues as well not exactly sure where that all was coming from but what was interesting so i had seen 
these Radicon wines and Grobner wines, both in the States and elsewhere, selling for well over $100 a bottle, back vintages at you know $200 a bottle. And it really made me think about what the future of investable wines you know, as it transitions is, you know, when we're, when I'm traveling and trying to taste wines from new regions, you're looking at like, cool, here are these fun, interesting varietals, and maybe they're not made in an ageable manner, but these are serious wines that, you know, this one was 20, this one was 18 years old and it was, you know, beautifully aged. And these wines are just now kind of reaching this peak. So while some people are looking at orange wines kind of as a fad, there are these really kind of serious, potentially really nicely ageable wines that are going to be coming onto the market made in really small, you know, quantities. And they're basically setting themselves up to be potential investment opportunities down the line. And not to mention Stanko Radicon, sadly, I think he was in his early 50s, died in 2016. Mm-hmm. So he was, it was either 50s, either way, it was an early, he wasn't, you know, it was an unexpected passing. So there, I was able to get one of the bottles of 2008 that he had personally made, but there is some, you know, that adds to some of the prices for, for some of his wines, but uh, yeah, it, it's not two things people put together when they think of investment grade wine and orange. But if you, if you mention either of these producers and there's a, a handful of others as well, kind of in that upper echelon with more emerging as well. So thought that was who, interesting. Who, who do you think the market in tr- like in terms of like the collector market would be for wines like this? I mean, you would imagine it'd be like the, the old guard Bordeaux collector, right? Not off the bat. So it, it's following the normal trend for some of these wine things, whereas that they're the absolute darlings of sommeliers. And, you know, they, they've been used in restaurants now for a long time. And you can see with the propagation of orange wine into mainstream culture that that's kind of spreading. So it's going beyond that. And I think it's kind of just now moved on to kind of these connoisseurs or people in the know who like think they're, you know, they know the best of the best from a certain style of wine or a certain region. And they're like, oh, have you ever heard of this producer? But I, I think since the wines have really been available with age on them now for not that long, you know, they're early 2000s and late 90s are really where they're starting to come. I think they're going to be presented in this light alongside some of these other back vintages to mm-hmm. more connoisseurs or in restaurants and kind of open people's eyes more. So I think they'll progress from kind of a sommelier's thing to like an early adopter, kind of sort of wine nerd, kind of like me, I guess, and then move on more to, towards the mainstream as people can start actually comparing them hand in hand to some of like the, the best aged expressions. Because I mean, the tannins are pretty pretty harsh when they're either served improperly if it's too cold like when we were talking to the sommelier in dc or if you know they're too young they can be you know not as appealing to some people um who mm-hmm. may prefer a little more developed yeah oh yeah that's really interesting yeah i mean we don't we don't often talk about these maybe like emerging regions or emerging styles but it's certainly something that we have our our finger on the pulse of i think we can probably expect to see something out of south america in you know, the next six months or so from Vint in terms of putting together some collectible wines. And yeah, it's nice to be able to, you know, when you or me or anyone else goes to some of these regions and gets to have experiences like that to be able to share with folks because yeah, 10, 15 years could be a serious, yeah, a serious market for wines like that. Now that, that, you know, you said that there's already a growing market, but could definitely become more mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like that's a good point is like you're not going to see an orange wine collection on the vent platform anytime soon but like right, the idea right. is like we're we're always as a company looking to see what's what's trending what's emerging and trying to getting our first hand experience and then we'll we'll be bringing those opportunities as they mature 
to the event platforms. I mean, they're, they're also red varietals in that region, like a grape called Rafosco, Rafosk in Slovenian, that's making these like really nice ageable red wines too, that, you know, could way down the line be mm-hmm. a collectible wine as well. So it's just, just getting a sense of, you know, where, where these trends are going. Gen Z as a whole is really interested in these obscure varietals or varietals that they don't, aren't as familiar with. Not everybody now wants like a cab from every country that they go to, even though Slovenia was trying to grow, like I had a few Slovenian cabs that were not grown where you're supposed to grow in cab. Like it, it was really funny. Like it was just, <laughs> it was just not a, not a ripe grape, but they just thought people want a cab at some point it's transitioning back. But I was just like, yeah, we were at this like mountain stay on this farm and I asked them what wines they had and they had like a sweet muscat of sorts and two cabs from Slovenia. One was like the reserve and one was the other one. It was like this really small farm town. So I asked the lady, I was like, where is she? Where do these come from? Or like, what, what other grapes are in these wines? And she's like, well, I don't know what grape is in this one, but I think it's from like Slovenia. And it said like Cabernet really big. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know that one's definitely Cabernet. And then the other one had a fanciful name. And she was like, I don't know what grape is in this one, but it is Cabernet. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. <laughs> so I got it. And the one I got was not good. Um, but uh, it was just showed that like, but the native varietals that we had from there were really good. Like Slovenian wines as a whole blew my mind. Their their range of varietals and styles is is huge. They have a big limestone plateau called Cart, which is in the southeast. That also goes into Italy called Carso there, which was part of Friuli. But they have these these beautiful limestone deposits and these these varietals that have so much acidity and minerality. So I, I just I had a blast just trying the different varietals. There was a version of a variety of Malbasia that I don't know if you know that much about Malbasia, but it had these kind of floral notes that some Malbasias can develop, but they're typically flabby. This one had acid. It was Malbasia di Asturia. And it goes down into like Croatia. And I was like, hmm. you know, opened my mind. I thought I would never really enjoy many Malvasias, but it was awesome. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Recommend everybody what, check out some anyway. What are you what are you looking for with in an orange wine? Like when, you know, because one of the criticisms is like, yeah, it's just like it's just not it's a style that's just not it's just not what you do with white grapes. What are you looking for when you're evaluating an orange wine, a white, you know, from white grapes that have been aged extended time on the skins? Yeah. I mean for me, what I sorry fermented, not aged, I guess. But they can be aged. I mean, like, like the 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 radicon I was talking about, you know, spent six months on the on the skins, probably. Oh wow, six um, months, like three to six. Yeah, the series. Okay. okay. Like the the ones that I was like talking about, like the the radicons or the grobners, they probably spent three to six months. Oh um, wow. Okay. So I'm used to thinking of it as like days or hours. Yeah, and that, that that is a more approachable style. There's a wine that Radicon makes that his son was making actually while while Stingo was still alive, Sasha, called Slotnik. And I got that too. And that's supposed to be like a more approachable style. It has days of skin contact rather than these like because when you leave yeah. them on for months, the tannin is is Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um Okay. Yeah, that explains some of its ageability and, and things like that. I'm like, yeah, what do you even what's even happening once you had a wine like that aged for 12 years? <laughs> Yeah, no, it it's wild what, what they can extract during that time as well. But yeah, I guess when you're when you're looking for an orange wine, it depends on like what you want out of it. But I like to look for acid number one, but also intention number two. I guess like if somebody's making it has like a direction, it's, it isn't just like kind of all over the place and out of balance. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's not just if you're at a winery and they have 
a bunch of other wines. They just happen to have one orange wine and you ask them about it and they're just like, this is our orange wine. It's just made from the same grapes that we had left over. Like something like that is not not great. I, I tend to think places too that make, I mean, this isn't kind of a blanket statement, but I tend to look for lower alcohol, higher acid wines as a whole. And then this same holds true for these. It means they like, they basically picked them at the right time. They weren't just picking them when they were trying to make a different style of wine. And then sure, them sure. In. They didn't um, just use their, I don't know. Yeah, they didn't just the, pick the, their... the, the white grapes that were growing at the same time next to their cab or something. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> or like all at once. Yeah, or if they had some extra Sauvignon Blanc and it was just like super ripe and they they made a you mm-hmm. know a nice one and then they made this one that's just like seems huge. I mean, that doesn't mean that all all of them aren't good like that, but higher that are all lower ass alcohol. But yeah, I, I think that tends to be, and I, I think you can ask sommeliers too and you can kind of see sometimes they describe some as like gatorade or like fruit punch or like powerade and like th- those ones tend to be like nice and quaffable those aren't like you know serious so they weren't like the intention so yeah you can you can kind of tell but it's all about trying ones it's hard to make any blanket statements because the style sure, varies sure so much yeah oh, that's cool yeah it's awesome yeah i want to get i mean i feel like i well, i haven't missed the boat quite yet it's still still warm out but it's a, a style that I'm not usually going to drink in the wintertime for whatever reason, but maybe I should. Yeah, maybe you get one of the more serious ones, get a That's get right. a Ribola Jala. Or, <laughs> in in Slovenia, they call it Ribula. But those like those are two those are more red wines, like basically than than orange. I would say you want to drink them about the same temp and and all yeah. that. Oh, cool. So, all right. Well, maybe we'll spotlight one of our. Maybe we'll, we'll spotlight that this Friday on our weekly newsletter where we. I forget what the <laughs> what the uh, our, like Friday wrap up. Yeah, the Friday wrap up that we do. So we we've been spotlighting what we're drinking this weekend, kind of wines there. Maybe we'll we'll spotlight one of those wines. Yeah, I'll throw out one or of the similar uh, similar style. I'll throw out one of the approachable Radicon ones. I think that something people can pick up. Yeah, yeah. I, this one should be able to find in specialty wine shops. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how many, but yeah. But I will say Slovenian wine as a whole, everybody should check it out. Even if you don't know what the varietal is, like there, there's a bunch of varietals that I had never had. And there are other ones that just have different names because it's in Slovenian. So mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend them as a whole. And then anything from Friuli as well. There's just a, a bunch of interesting wines, but it's hard to find really bad wines from these places. Like the, I was just saying the cab wasn't great because they were trying to grow it for somebody else. They thought that's what tourists wanted was cab. So they grew it, but like mm-hmm. the locals weren't drinking that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode. Stay on the lookout today for the 2021 Bordeaux on Primor collection. Grab your shares. They're $50 a share and we'll see you next time. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.